The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. James begins by talking about troubles and trials and pain and suffering in our life. And he says in the midst of it, we know that God has a purpose and a plan and He's working out something that we don't see. And so our recourse in the midst of such things is to ask God to pray and ask God for wisdom. And so we begin with the issues of suffering and prayer. And James ends his letter in this last little section here, bringing us full circle back to the issue again of suffering and prayer. You say, well... <clears throat> This must have been important to James. It must have been something that was critical for those to whom he was writing to hear. And we know, because we've been talking about this background throughout the study, that James was writing to persecuted believers who were suffering in many ways. And throughout the letter, we've noted many of the ways that they're suffering. There's all sorts of affliction going on. There's poor believers being sort of persecuted and taken advantage of by the wealthy. Um, There is sickness, there is a loss of income, there are physical, spiritual, emotional means through which they're suffering. And James has really addressed all of those things. And so at the end, he comes back around to this issue of suffering and the issue of prayer. And he takes it in a direction that he has not taken it up to this point. In fact, he takes it in a direction that no other biblical writer takes it. And so it brings us then to this section of of chapter 5 that is for us a very challenging text to walk through. It is no doubt the most difficult text in James to interpret. It is perhaps one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture to interpret. There are a couple of reasons why. Uh, One of the reasons why is uh, there is no parallel to this text anywhere in Scripture. So normally when we get to a difficult text that we're having trouble making sense of and working through, we can sort of cross-reference to other places in Scripture where it speaks to the same issue, which then sort of shed light on the difficult passage and help us to then come to grips with what it means in light of what the rest of Scripture says. Because we come to this book understanding that it's God's Word and it doesn't contradict. It speaks consistently to any issue to which it speaks. And so we use other Scripture to then help us interpret difficult passages. Well, it doesn't help us here in James chapter 5, verse 13, because no other author speaks to this issue to which James speaks in the way that he speaks to it. So there's no text to which we can point that makes this easier. The other problem is the language James employs is very challenging all throughout this section. It's very challenging. James uses more than one word for sickness and suffering. He uses more than one word for healing and raising up and saving. And he seems to interchange those, although we must conclude that James has some reason for shifting his language. I wish he was here so we could ask him, because it is very difficult to discern from what he's written. Another problem we have with the language is several of the words that James employs are words that have a very wide range of meaning. That can mean a lot of things. And so we have to now, uh, you know, a couple thousand years down the road of history, try and make sense of and try and understand what did James mean when he employed this word? Did he intend this meaning or that meaning? And so... What that all means for you is as we work through this text, we're going to do it a little differently than what we normally would. I'm going to talk to you a lot more about words and language. And if that makes your head spin and makes uh, you want to go throw up somewhere, I'm sorry. But um, we don't normally talk about Greek language and such technical matters in a given Sunday morning sermon. However, um, there's, there's no avoiding it in this text because everything hinges on how we understand the words. And so you need to be familiar with the issues involved in that. So I'll try to keep that at a minimum, uh, but also enough to help you see what the challenges are. 
we'll make note of the fact that uh, those who have translated the Bible that you hold in front of you from Greek into English have made interpretive decisions about these words when they've chosen what English word to use. Um, And I'll try to point that out to you because it's just helpful to remember that as we come to the Scriptures, we, we hold them inerrant and we hold them infallible, but that's in their original writing. And we understand that when somebody translates from Greek in the New Testament to English or German or French or any other language, they're making interpretive decisions because words don't always have an exact parallel from one language to the next. And so somebody has to decide which English word to use for that Greek word. It could be three or four things. That's what Bible translators do and translation committees do. And it's also why you may read three different English translations of this text and see different English words used at various points. All of that sums up um, to, to bring us to the fact that this is just a hard text. There are challenging issues. There are challenging questions that I'm sure are raised in your mind as soon as we read through that text, right? There are questions like, what is the nature of sickness in view? What does James mean when he says, is any among you sick? What kind of sickness is he talking about? Is he talking about the flu? Is he talking about something physical? Is he talking about something spiritual? Is he talking about some uh, sort of crossover of both? We have to answer that question. Uh, What role does anointing with oil play? That seems like a bizarre thing. Who goes around anointing people with oil? And what does that even mean? And what does that even look like? And what is the significance of oil? What part does it play in the whole matter? James makes a point to include it, so it must mean something. But what? What is this prayer of faith that James talks about? He says here in the text... And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What does it mean? What is this prayer of faith? Is it a particular kind of prayer? Is he talking about a particular kind of faith? What is this prayer of faith that saves? What kind of salvation are we talking about? He says right after that, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. He's talking about some sort of saving, some sort of salvation. What kind of salvation is he talking about? Is he talking about a physical healing? Is he talking about some sort of spiritual salvation, as we would use that word in other contexts? And perhaps most problematic, beyond if those weren't hard enough to figure out, the language is so direct. The prayer of faith, he says, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. He doesn't give us qualifiers. It just seems like a blanket statement. And how are we to understand that in light of what we see in other parts of Scripture? And how do, we, how do we reconcile that with the experience of life that we have, where we know that we have prayed for people who were sick and they were not healed? So you can see, we've got a text that's fraught with problems. And if you've come expecting that I have all the answers this morning, I'm sorry to just let me inform you right off. I don't. I've wrestled with this text all week. It has been particularly difficult, and I've found myself particularly unsettled throughout the week. I've come to conclusions that make sense to me, and I'm going to lay those out to you, and I suspect they'll make sense to you. I hope they do. If they don't, then we can certainly interact on that at some other point. One of the other problems that you run into here is when you go to the commentators, that people that you know and trust and respect. I mean, I can almost, when I get to head-scratchers in the Bible, you know, I just have go-to people that I trust, that I know are wiser than me, who know the Bible better than I do, who understand language better than I do, who've spent more time, you know, interpreting Scripture than I have, and then I trust their, their wisdom. And again, it's no help on this text. You go to the people that you love and trust, and I I have a good basis of about 12 commentaries that I've been using in in James. And then there's a kind of a, a sort of a pool of others that when I'm not satisfied there, I go beyond. And when you do that with this text, you find, I mean, people are everywhere and all over the place across the board. And so you just still end up scratching your head going, I don't even know what the heck. Uh, And so... When you go back to ancient writers like Calvin, Luther, early Reformed writers, they come to this text, and here's what they do with it. They come to this text, and and they have just a really great way of avoiding all the problems. They just group this 
with the miraculous healing gifts that we see in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. So they group it with miracles, healings, and tongues. They group it with what they would call, and what I would agree with, are the, 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 the miraculous spiritual gifts that were unique to the apostolic era uh, that operated during the time in which the church, early church was first established and there was no established written word of God. And so God uniquely empowered the apostles and some of their close associates to be able to do miraculous things for their ministry season. They could heal miraculously. They could do other sorts of miracles. They could teach in one language and it be understood in another language. The gift of tongues. And all of those things were taking place in the first century during the ministry days of the apostles and their close associates. But historically, at least, it seems that after their deaths and the establishment of the biblical canon, the written word of God, those things ceased. Those spiritual gifts. Don't get me wrong. God hasn't ceased to heal. He hasn't ceased to work miracles. He does it every day all around the world. But what ceased are the personal spiritual gifts that those men had the ability, it seems, to go around and operate with at will to some degree. As personal gifts. So Luther and Calvin, the ancient writers, they just say, oh, James is just talking about that stuff. And that ended with the apostles, so this has no meaning. We can just ignore it now. There's no need to call for the elders to pray and anoint anybody with oil who's sick for healing. That was miraculous stuff that went on during the apostles. It ceased. So move on to verse 19. Well, it's convenient, and I like it. Because it's easy. The problem is, though, James doesn't say call the apostles to come and heal or to come and pray for healing, does he? Who does he say to call? He says call the elders. These are not apostles. These are not anybody who lived during a certain era and had particular miraculous spiritual gifts. It's just the ordinary shepherds of the local church who still function today in the way that they did in the early church. So I have a hard time with what Luther and Calvin argue because it seems like a cop-out. And it doesn't fit with who's called to do this. So again, just not to belabor the point, it's hard. Let's figure it out. Okay, verse 13 is where James begins. And he begins... with describing a general principle for the believer's lifestyle, which I believe sets the foundation for the whole text. He says this, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James asks two questions, and he asks those questions to lay out a simple general principle for every believer of all time about the Christian life. And here's the principle. It's very simple. The principle is this, prayer and praise are the best response to every circumstance of believers' lives. Prayer and praise are the best response to every circumstance of a believer's life. So how do you get there? Well, James asked two questions. It's like he's asking his audience, Hey, are any of you out there suffering? Raise your hand. You know, he knows his audience. He knows there are some who are. And then he says, well, what about the rest of you? Are, Are some of you not suffering? You're cheerful today. Everything's going pretty good. How about you? Raise your hand. He's including his whole audience in these two questions. And he's laying down for them a general principle. The word he uses for suffering here is a word that simply means to suffer hardship, distress, pain. It's a very general word that can mean any sort of suffering, any sort of hardship, any sort of pain. It could be physical, it could be mental, it could be emotional, it could be anything. Just a general word for suffering. And we know the immediate context of the book tells us that they were suffering in a lot of different ways. And so James is just simply saying, what about those of you who are suffering in all these ways that I've been talking about? It's a word that encompasses all kinds of trials, troubles, suffering, anything negative and painful that people experience. That's what's sort of underneath this question. Are any of you suffering? Are any of you having trouble? Are you having pain? Are you having trials? Are you having suffering? What is the appropriate response for such a time? James says, let him, say it with me, pray. Let him pray. The proper response for a believer in suffering is always the same. Pray. It's to pray. 
It's to go to God and cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. It's to take our pain and our troubles and our, our, our hardships and our suffering and to lay it at His feet, recognizing Him as the sovereign, almighty One who does all things, who can do all things, who's omnipotent, who's omniscient, who's all-powerful, who's everywhere at once, who has all means at His disposal, who knows what's always best, who always knows what's wise, who always knows what ought to happen in our lives at any given moment, and to lay them there, trusting Him to do as He will with our lives in whatever season we find ourselves in. And we've noted before, this is not our natural fleshly fleshly response to suffering, right? We all know what our natural fleshly response to suffering is. You know what yours is. I know what mine is. And I guarantee you that yours is some sort of cocktail of anger, resentment, doubting, self-pity, discouragement, depression, impatience. Fair enough? Did I hit your cocktail of natural response when suffering comes into your life. Okay? Some of us may be heavier or lighter on the impatience. Some of us may be heavier or lighter on the anger. Some of us may be heavier or lighter on the self-pity. But I guarantee you, when suffering comes into your life, nobody has to tell you how to generate those kinds of responses. They come natural to you. Right? They come natural to me. And James is saying as a general principle of life, Believers ought to do battle against those kinds of fleshly responses. And the alternative to all of them is to pray. Is to pray. The problem is we worship comfort. We worship comfort and we've come to expect it as the norm of our lives. I didn't hear an amen, but I know I can get an amen if I ask for one. We worship comfort. And we've come to expect it as the norm for our lives. It's true. Particularly in our culture. Particularly so. You talk to people who come from other cultures around the world into American culture, and they will notice that almost immediately. Particularly if they've come from poorer, less affluent cultures. Where suffering is more prominent as a part of daily life. But because we worship comfort and we've come to expect it as the norm in our daily lives, we are shocked and we're appalled when suffering comes. Like, what is this alien that's invaded my life that doesn't belong here? And all we're interested in primarily is how in the world do we get rid of it? And sadly, we're driven to prayer only for that purpose, often. I'm going to pray only because I want it gone. Now, the problem is James has already instructed us about this matter in his book. He's already talked to us about suffering. He's already told us some things that we can't forget. He's already told us that suffering is to be expected. In every believer's life, suffering is to be inspected. It is not an alien. It belongs there. And we should expect it, not be shocked by it. He's told us that there is a purpose in our suffering. That God has a purpose for it. In chapter 1, he said, the initial purpose is to teach us patience, and we only learn patience through suffering. And then he's told us that the long-term goal that God has in mind in our suffering is maturity. That we only become mature through suffering. So, suffering is to be expected. God generates patience through it, and he makes us mature through it. Suffering is an important piece of our lives. And James has already told us, our primary responsibility in suffering is to be patient. To be patient. To pray for God's wisdom and His help to endure. So whatever kind of suffering we face, James says here, whether it's pain or sickness or anxieties or grief or loss or depression or discouragement or betrayal, or it's, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, our natural impulse as Christians must be to pray. Not to gossip, not to complain, not to wallow in self-pity, but to pray. Peter calls for the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties where? That's the way of saying pray. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Paul says the same thing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, right? But in everything, in prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. It's another way of saying 
In the midst of your suffering, don't be anxious. Carry your stuff to God and pray. So James here is consistent in this general principle with both Peter and Paul. He doesn't tell us what to pray. He doesn't tell us how to pray. But based on the rest of his letter, we can certainly ascertain that he would have us pray for things like endurance. He would have us pray for things like faith in the midst of our suffering. He would have us pray for things like patience and maturity to be the result because that's what God is doing. So it's appropriate for me in the midst of suffering to say, God, I recognize you're working in me patience and you're working in me, in me maturity. So God, help me to be patient and to endure this suffering. And I pray that you would work out those things so that they become a reality of my life. And I think it's okay to pray for relief. To pray for relief particularly when God's good work is done. Is any of you suffering? Let him pray. And then James turns to the other crowd. How about those of you who raised your hand about being cheerful? What about you? What should you be doing in your life? Let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. The word cheerful here carries the idea to be cheerfully encouraged. It's not an exact opposite of suffering, as though we're talking about suffering and not suffering. It's The suffering deals with a physical, sort of, maybe emotional, psychological thing. But the cheerfulness here, it's more of an emotional word that speaks to a state of mind. So it's like he's saying, are any of you suffering? And what about those of you who at the moment are cheerful? You're cheerfully encouraged. You may be having some suffering in your life, but it's not debilitating. You're you're able to, to be cheerful and encouraged in the midst of it. Or it may be that life is grand at the moment. And, and, and you're on the mountaintop and all is well. Your relationships are good. Your body is feeling great. You know, life is good. Work is good. The family is well. Those of you who are cheerfully encouraged, those who are content, who are feeling good about life, what about you? Let him sing praise. The proper response of a believer in good seasons is to praise God. It's to praise God. The word sing here is a word from which we get the word psalm. It's a present tense word. Continually, continually sing praises to Him. It's the idea that as believers, when life is good and we're cheerful and we're encouraged and life is going on, that the, the breath we breathe ought to be a, a breath of praise to God. God, thank You that, 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 that life is good. Thank You that I woke up this morning and breathed the fresh air. Thank You for my workplace that's you know, it's paying my, my bills for my family, that's providing me a place to use the, the abilities that I have. Thank You for my spouse who loves me and is faithful to me. Thank You for my children. Thank You that there's enough money to pay the bills you know, that, are, that are due this month. Just let Him sing praise. It's interesting, singing praise to God is actually very closely related to prayer in a lot of ways, isn't it? I mean, in both cases, God is the audience. When we pray, we're praying to God. When we sing praise to God, we are singing praise to God. We are, he's the audience in both cases. And in both cases, we're recognizing His sovereignty, His power, His provision, and His character, Right? So when we praise God and we're singing praise to Him, it's the same thing. We're singing praise because we recognize that He's sovereign. We recognize that He's good. We recognize that He's blessed us and that He's helped us and that He's good to us and that He's merciful and that He's loving and all of those things that we feel when life is cheerful and we're encouraged. When we're praying, we're recognizing all the same things. Incidentally, this is a major part of what we do in corporate worship, right? We gather as God's people and we sing praise to God out of cheerful hearts because we recognize who He is and what He's done for us. We come and we praise Him when we're cheerful. But you know, sometimes when we're suffering, it's hard to sing praise to God, isn't it? It's hard. Singing praise is hard when we're suffering. So prayer is appropriate. Have you ever been suffering deeply in some way in your life? And you've gathered with God's people and you just find yourself on the inside just just hurting and struggling in so many ways and it's just difficult to bring your lips to say the words to the song? And you feel like you're just being fraudulent and singing happy songs because it's not really what's going on inside your heart at the moment? It's hard to sing those praises to God. I think we've all 
felt that before. What's the appropriate response when we're suffering? You could pray. You could pray. You're not forced to be fraudulent in here. You may come here and that's your lot, and you're not cheerful, and you can't sing the words, and you can't sing them with meaning and heart. Then pray. One author said this, Some of us take our happiness too lightly. We accept it as if it is our due, or simply the product of our efforts. In happiness, in happiness, it is easy to forget God. But a real appreciation of happy times will lead us to recognizing their source. And I think that is what James is sort of saying here, right? He's saying, whatever your lot, whether you're on this end and you're suffering, or whether you're on this end and you're cheerful, and all of you that are in between, there's really two appropriate things that should be going on in your life. Prayer and praise to God, regardless of what's going on. Regardless of your suffering down here, or if you're cheerful and encouraged, you pray and you praise the Lord. Prayer and praise are the best response to every circumstance of believers' lives. Prayer is nothing but talking to God, communicating with God. Right? That's what it is. It's not like magic words. It's communication with our Heavenly Father who loves us. All relationships, you and I know this, are based on communication. Husbands and wives understand this, right? Our relationship, our relationship sort of ebbs and flows in many ways based on how communication is going in the relationship. Is that true, husbands and wives? When we're talking regularly and we're on the same page, right? The relationship deepens. It's deep and it's wide and it's right on both ends. But let one partner stop communicating, right? And start just giving general answers and general comments. And the conversation doesn't go any deeper than the surface. Or let both start doing that. And you see what happens in that relationship pretty fast. Things spiral in negative ways quickly. Very quickly. The same is true in our, in our relationship with the Lord. It's a relationship like other relationships. God is real. He, he has personhood and we are people and we were made for Him and we were made to be in communication with Him. And when we shut that down, it has devastating effects in the relationship. And so James is just simply saying, if you want your relationship with the Lord to be healthy, then the air that you breathe needs to be prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. Whatever's going on in your life, it's one or the other or some combination of both. Chuck Swindoll said this. Stop thinking of prayer like a fire extinguisher. I like that. Stop thinking of prayer like a fire extinguisher. It's not, uh, it's not to hang around in the, back, in the back spaces of your mind until a crisis arises or, arises or a tragedy strikes. Yes, prayer will normally follow affliction, sickness, sin, fear, and loss. But it also relates to joy, blessing, thankfulness, and intimate conversation with your Heavenly Father. But it tweaks me because I can think of so many moments or seasons in my life where I would never have wanted to admit it, but prayer was like a fire extinguisher. Man, I understand simple illustrations, right? I just yank it out when there's a crisis and I need to shoot something at it, you know? Maybe in your life you can think of those seasons too. But James is just simply saying there's a general principle we all need to live by. Prayer and praise is the, it should be the air that we breathe, regardless of whether we're cheerful or suffering. And anywhere in between. He moves then from this general principle into verse 14. And he moves down. It's like he's got, he's talked to the broadest scope and now he's sort of narrowing it. And he goes from the general principle of prayer and praise to a particular kind of prayer for the sick. And he says, is anyone sick among you? This is question number three. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Here's the general principle. Well, what about those of you who are sick? And he uses a different word here. It's a different word. It's not that general word for suffering. It's a more acute word. It's as though James is asking uh, about a particular subset of life. It's not a season where you're cheerfully encouraged, and it's not a season where you're suffering in general. It's as though James is asking the question, what about when our suffering is acute and it's serious? And it's desperate. What about when life and the things of life are so bad that we don't know how to pray? What happens in those moments when we're exhausted, when we're at the end of our rope, when we're spiraling down and we can't see any way out of the pit? 
What do you do when you when life gets so hard and so difficult that you cannot see your way forward and life has been particularly cruel for the moment? What about that person? What does she do? What does he do? I think that's the question James is asking here when he says, Is any among you sick? The word sick here, as again, it's a broad word. It can mean all sorts of things. It's used variously in Scripture to talk about, to describe mental weakness, to describe spiritual condition in Romans chapter 5, to speak in 2 Corinthians 10 about sort of general physical appearance. It's used to refer to the conscience or to one's bodily constitution. I mean, just all sorts of things that this kind of sickness could involve. Incidentally, that leads some commentators, and you might see this if you read it, to argue then that the sickness that James has in view here is not a physical sickness at all. They would say to us, the primary meaning of the word simply means to be weak, to be spiritually weak. And so folks who take it this way would, would say, what James has got in view here has nothing to do with being physically ill or any sort of protect, protracted sickness or disease. They would say, no, 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 what James is talking about here is just spiritual weakness, not physical weakness. And the idea then is that when you're spiritually weak and you're spiritually discouraged, you call the elders and they pray and they anoint you with oil and then God will, will raise you up. That is to say, He'll restore you spiritually. Now, my hero, uh, John MacArthur, takes this this way. And again, it's very appealing because it really eliminates most of the challenges with the text, right? If we say that what James really means here is just we're talking about a spiritual sickness here. We're talking about being spiritually weak. And so, really, the issue here has nothing to do with physical sickness. Well, that eliminates some of the challenges, right? That eliminates us having to wrestle with the Lord will raise him up will save the one who's prayed for. If, if that's to be understood physically, we had to wrestle with why doesn't it always happen. But if we just say, well, it's not talking about physical stuff. He's just talking about spiritual weakness. Well, that's easier to work with. But I find it unconvincing. I find it unconvincing a couple of reasons. Number one, in the Gospels, every time the word is used, it's used of physical sickness, physical ailment of some sort. Every time in the Gospels. James is an early letter. Um, Some of the places where the word has other uses are in Paul's later letters that James most likely would not have been at least acutely familiar with. James himself, physically, who is he in relation to Jesus? Do you remember? He's the half-brother. So he's very closely aligned with the life and ministry of Jesus. And very in tune to what Jesus taught. And very in tune to the things that were going on as recorded in the Gospels. That would have, I think, been James' primary context. And in every case used there, the word means physical sickness, physical illness. And so that leads me to believe the other issues that come up in this text is it says that the sick person, it seems at least that James has in mind that this sick person he's talking about here can't come to the elders. He's saying you call the elders to do what? To go to them. It seems to me that there's a a sickness, there's something debilitating enough to where the sick person can't come to the elders. But in general, the elders need to go to where that person is. And the idea is praying over them. That could mean a lot of different things. And we can't be dogmatic about it. But it seems to me that that it may be that they're lying down in a bed and they physically can't get up. And so the elders are, are literally praying over them. Can't be certain about that. But that's what it seems to me, at least, to make sense. So what do we make of this? What are, who are the sick? It seems to me, it seems to me that James has in mind people who are suffering and whose suffering is debilitating at the moment. It's debilitating. At the very least, physically, and perhaps also spiritually. I read commentators, and it was like, it was, it was like you know, the Ford and Chevy people. You know, it's either physical or it's spiritual. You know, and you either got the Ford or you got the Chevy, but you don't have both. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why does it have to be one or the other? And I don't think it is because James doesn't make any important declaration one way or the other. And to me, the experience of my life and the experience of those with whom I've had the opportunity to minister seems to be that anytime there's debilitating physical sickness or illness, it's almost always attendant with a, a resulting spiritual 
pain and emotional debilitation that goes along with it. And people are whole people. You you don't carve out the physical part from the non-physical part. It seems to me that it's probably both. That James is mostly, most likely talking about a both and, not an either or here. What happens when a person... What about those of you who are sick? What happens when life is so severe and the pain and the difficulty and the problem of the moment is so debilitating and so disheartening that you just kind of hit rock bottom and you can't see your way out? What happens when the pain has gone on for so long and it's been so acute and you've prayed and you're to the point now where you don't even know what to pray? When, when you're so physically, emotionally, spiritually weak that you, don't, you, you look to, this, to the ceiling and you just don't even know what words to say. What do you do when you're at the end of the, your rope, when you're exhausted, when you're absolutely weak in, on every front and you have no way to get out? When you're desperate, what do you do? He's already said, if you're cheerful, praise to God. If you're suffering in general, you pray. But what happens when you can't pray for yourself? Because things have gone so bad and so wrong for so long. He says that there is something else to do. And that something else is you call the elders of your church. He says the purpose at least one of them, for me placing elders in the local body, is so that they can come alongside desperate sheep and lift them up when they can't see a way out. James says, what happens? You you call the elders. You call the elders to come and pray for you. Uh, Notice here, it's the sick person who takes the initiative. Did you catch that? It's the responsibility of the desperate person to reach out and say, I'm desperate. I need help. It's not the business of the elders to be monitoring everybody's you know, physical health and everything like that. It is the responsibility of the sheep to say, you know what, my life is out of control and I need help. And God has gifted me with people in my life called elders who I can pick up the phone and call or who I can email or who I can do whatever I need to reach them and ask them to come help me. That's what happens here. They reach out. One of the saddest realities of pastoral ministry that I found over the years is, is often when people are suffering deeply, the pastors are the last people to know. It's true. I can't tell you how many times I find out that there's chaos in somebody's life and they've been suffering for a long time and ten other people knew and I had no clue. I found out only when it blew up in some awful way and there was no hiding it anymore. Listen, Christians get to places where they're desperate. Just being a Christian doesn't insulate us from that. We get to places in life where there's sickness or disease or other sorts of debilitating suffering in our life that can take us to places where we don't want to be, where we're embarrassed that we are, where we don't know how to pray, where we're just desperate and we cannot see our way out. And there's an enemy of our souls who will tell us in those moments, you have no hope, nobody cares, you're on your own. And that's why people take guns and put them to their heads and pull the trigger, because they believe that. But James is saying for a believer, that's never the case. The enemy may lie to you about that, but there's always a resource for you. There are elders who care about you, who have been given charge over your soul, who you can reach out to, who will not judge you, who will not embarrass you, who will not humiliate you, but they will pray for you. When when you don't know what words to say, they'll come along and say words for you. This, this particular thought sort of captures my emotions because it's an important issue to me. Because I think people, more people than any of us know, get to that place of desperation and they feel all alone and they think nobody cares and they think that there's no help available. Christians in churches 
believe that, think that, say that. And, and if there's anything we can capture in the midst of all of the difficulties of this text, we need to at least capture that truth that's clear. If any of us gets to that place, you have an outlet, you have a resource. If you don't know what to pray, there are men who know what to pray for you. If you're so weak that you can't lift your head, they will come alongside you wherever you are, and they will pray over you that God would restore you whatever's gone wrong. You need to write that down somewhere, because when you hit that place, it's going to be hard to believe, but it's true. The elders are responsible to pray for the congregation in general, and we do that here. You get postcards in the mail if you're a member of this church from time to time that reminds you that we are actively doing that for you and on your behalf. How many of you have gotten a postcard at some point from the elders of this church saying that, hey, we pray for you? Yeah, it's a part of what we do. But it's not all we want to do to pray in general. God has called us to be available when you're desperate and the need is specific. But you have to tell us. You have to let us know so we can come. So why the elders? As you can see, we're not going to get very far with this. Let me just come here. Why the elders? Well, because God has appointed elders to shepherd the flock. They're supposed to be people who are spiritually mature, wise, empathetic, loving, and gracious. People who are spiritually strong. And, and that's what the weak need. When you're spiritually weak, you need people who are spiritually strong, who can come alongside you and lift you up and help you. It's worth noting he doesn't say to them, Hey, if you're desperate and you're sick and the, uh, the, the ailment is acute, call the people with the gift of healing. Like our charismatic brothers would want to say. No, he doesn't say go, call the, go find the guy who's got the gift of healing and call that guy or that gal. Have them come over and utilize their healing powers on you. No, James says call the elders. Just call the local elders of your church, the local shepherds. McCartney says this, the elders are to be called not because they're invested with special powers, but because they represent the church as a whole, and their prayers are an expression of the prayers of the entire congregation. So what do you do when you're desperate? What do you do when life is throwing you a curveball that you didn't see coming and you can't see a way out of? James says, you call the elders. And you lay it on the line. And you say, would you please come pray for me? And in this church, the answer to that question will always be, yes, when can we come? Today? Tomorrow? And we'll be there. And we'll pray for you. And we'll bring whatever strength the Lord has given us uh, as shepherds of this congregation alongside your desperation. And we will pray for you fervently. And we will serve you in your weakness. James says what the elders are supposed to do. They're to pray over the sick person and they're to anoint them with oil. Well, let's go there next week because our time is up. What is, what is this prayer and what is this anointing? What do we make of all of that? We did this this morning, right? We had one who was sick who'd asked for us to pray and we did that. And we did that. I want to ask you, a couple questions sort of to bring this whole thing to an end. Do you believe that prayer matters? Do you really believe that prayer matters? I'm convinced that many of us don't, and that's why we don't do it. I think there's a danger of, in Reformed theological circles where we have a strong view of the sovereignty of God to default to a position that God is sovereign and because of that He's going to do what He does and therefore prayer doesn't really make that much of a difference. I want to challenge that if that is something that's going on inside of your heart. God is absolutely sovereign and He will accomplish His will in every way. But that God also who ordains the end also ordains the means to the end. And He's told us that prayer is a means to the end. And He's called us to pray. If you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful, you pray via praise to God. 
And in everything in between that, we're talking to Him. And it matters. And He listens. The second question I want to ask you, do you really believe that God heals? Do you really believe that God heals? Because I'm convinced that most of us don't really think He does. And we certainly don't expect that He will. We live in a very intellectual society. supernatural the miraculous is unusual and there's a part of us that kind of writes that off with fairy tales and fantasies but God's word is it's consistent front to back that God does heal sickness and disease and I think sometimes he doesn't do it you don't have sometimes because you simply do not ask and I want to challenge us as a church to take seriously this matter of prayer in this matter, particularly of both physical and spiritual healing for people. Because James is going to go on to tell us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. And the reason is because prayer matters and because God heals. So I want you to search your own heart in that. As we pray in closing today, I want to mention one other thing. We have a a special guest with us this morning. Brother named Tim and his wife Rhonda, who's not with us, um, who are have been 35 years missionaries in Indonesia. Uh, I found out this week that there's a place across the street from our church called the Gathering Place. It's a ministry that has bought uh, a large home that's in the woods right across from us, and this uh, family has been renovating the home for it's like an 8,000 square foot home. They've been renovating it for the last four years. They live there but they've renovated the bulk of it into rooms for missionaries who are serving in the mission field to come and have respite when they're discouraged, when they're hurting, when they're burnt out on the mission field, when they just need to get away for a minute. They can come to this place and have a nice place to, to get away at no cost. And I didn't know that the place existed, and I didn't know that they're often throughout the year full of people who are taking advantage of that, missionaries and their whole families, often. Uh, Tim and his wife Rhonda are, are, are there at the moment. And many, by the way, they often send people on Sundays to our church. You should know that because if you meet somebody that you don't know on a Sunday, it could be someone who's at the gathering place who's just come to worship. We should be aware of that. Um, but Tim has come this morning, and I, I met him uh, today. His wife Rhonda is in the hospital because she is suffering acutely um, with mental and emotional uh, depression and other things and is seeking medical treatment for that. Served 35 years on the mission field in Indonesia for the Lord. So as we close today, I thought what we could do is we search our own hearts in this matter of do I believe God heals and do I really think prayer matters and what role does this play in my life with also exercising on behalf of this brother and his wife Uh, prayer for her. Her name is Rhonda. So let's pray together as we close this. God, we are grateful that you are a God who loves us and who is merciful and who is gracious. A God who cares about the afflictions of his people. A God who doesn't just set us on course and say, yeah, life is going to stink from time to time, but just suck it up. Deal with it. But you're a God who has put all sorts of resources in our life. You've told us you're loving and merciful and kind, and you're moved with compassion toward the pain of your people. And you put others around us who love us and care for us, who when we are weak and suffering and in pain, can gather around us and lift us up and be strong in our weakness. And yet, God, as we look at our own lives, the privacy in with which we live, the concern we have for appearances and what people think of us, It builds up these barriers in our life that cause us to live alone in a crowd. That make us embarrassed to share when we're suffering. That make it hard for us to pick up the phone and call a brother or a sister and say, You know what? I am am suffering. And I can't see my way out. Could you come help me? We have to confess before you too, God. We've heard you call us to pray. (laughs) We've heard it. We've read it. But quite often we just don't do it. Oh, in some ways we just don't think it matters. 
Other times, we're not convinced that you'll do anything about it. Convict us, Lord, in this area of our life and draw us to repentance for our failures. Forgive us and set us on course to talk with you in prayer and praise throughout the week. Lord, for the one who doesn't know you this morning, all of this probably seems so crazy and bizarre. I don't know what it is to talk to God because they're separated from you by their sin. Convince them that they need you this morning. Draw them to yourself by way of your son Jesus who died and bled on the cross for their sins. That they might come to you in prayer, a prayer for forgiveness, a turning from their sin, and a reaching out to you as their only hope. And it is our great joy this morning, Father, to pray for our brother Tim and his wife Rhonda who have crossed our path a living example of what James is talking about here. I thank you for over three and a half decades of faithful service to you in a hard place. Sacrificed everything to go. The comforts of this nation, to live in a foreign place among foreign people and to take your good news. Bless them for that, Lord. We pray particularly for Rhonda as she suffers She even this morning finds herself in a hospital. Uh, We believe you're a God who heals. We believe you're a God who is capable and willing and able. And so we ask on her behalf for healing. God, heal her directly. Heal her through the hospital and the doctors and the procedures and the medications. We could care less how you do it, God. Make her whole. Restore her to health and to the ministry you've called she and her husband to. In the meantime, Lord, comfort them and help them. Encourage Tim. Lord, as we sing this last song of praise to you, we we just remain seated and we're going to just pray on our own.